0: This is Planetary Radio. Welcome to an all-new, all-singing, all-dancing Planetary Radio. I'm Matt Kaplan. What do you do when there's a planet in your solar system that is so distant you really know almost nothing about it? You go there, of course... Alan Stern is principal investigator for the New Horizons mission to Pluto and beyond, launching in 2006, if all goes well. He'll be here to talk about this mammoth voyage and a few of the other projects that make him a very busy planetary astronomer. Bruce Betts is on the road doing microgravity research, sort of, and calling in with a new trivia question. First, though, Emily is talking about the weather, and it's looking stormy.
1: Hi, I'm Emily Lakdawalla with questions and answers. A listener asked, Why are Jupiter's great red spot, Neptune's great dark spot, and their small subdued counterparts on Saturn all in the southern hemispheres of these planets? All of these huge cloud systems in the atmospheres of the giant outer planets appear to be storms in which atmospheric gases are rising and expanding. If that's true, they are similar to storms in Earth's mid-latitudes and should not be seen to favor either hemisphere. The question of why giant planet storms seem to be confined to the southern hemispheres has plagued planetary scientists, and we just don't know the answer. It may just be a coincidence, because while Jupiter's great red spot has been observed for over 300 years, other storms in the atmospheres of Jupiter, Saturn, and Neptune don't appear to be as long-lived. Stay tuned to Planetary Radio to find out more.
0: On May 29 of this year, the Los Angeles Times featured a page one article titled, So Far, Yet Now So Near. If the star of that piece was the planet Pluto, you could say Alan Stern was best supporting actor. Dr. Stern directs the Department of Space Studies at the Southwest Research Institute in Boulder, Colorado. That's where we found several of our special guests on Planetary Radio in the Past. He joins us from there now. Welcome, Alan. Hi there, Matt. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. And uh, that was quite an article in the L.A. Times. Well, Usha McFarling is a uh, really talented
2: writer, and uh, it was a spectacular article. As you say, she really captured the story.
0: And this is a story that has been pretty near and dear to your heart for a lot of years now.
2: It has, and that's a story in and of itself, isn't it?
0: Yes, it is. Uh, We should say that a mission to Pluto is something that you have dreamt of for a long time. Now it's going to happen. It's called New Horizons. Of course, it's also a mission that the uh, Planetary Society had a role in uh, supporting, uh, helping to make that come about. But you uh, are going to play a very central role in this mission.
2: Well, I'm the principal investigator. You know, NASA thinks of principal investigators as as, uh, the Harry Truman of the... uh the endeavor, you know, the buck stops here.
0: <laughs> and are you finding that to be the case?
2: Uh, yeah, that's the way it works, you know, uh, whether it's at uh, the level of uh, being a what we call a PI for principal investigator, at the instrument level where an instrument goes on a spacecraft, or, you know, this is new for me doing an entire mission. It's very much the case that um, uh, when NASA wants to bring up a problem or resolve something, uh, they take up the phone and find, my number, any time of the day or night,
0: so they're going to keep you busy for a few years because uh when will uh, New Horizons head for that little rock?
2: Well, uh departure is in January of two thousand six
0: and it's going to take how long to get that far?
2: That depends upon which day in January we launch and what launch vehicle uh, we select. It could take as long as a dozen years, but much more likely um, it'll take us uh eight and a half uh, or nine and a half years.
0: And is that because you will be uh, taking the kind of trajectory that the wonderful Voyager spacecraft did before you, where you'll be slingshotting uh, around other planets, or are you taking a more direct route?
2: Well, if we uh, launch in January of 06, uh, we will go direct to Jupiter, and then off. It's one left turn, and we're off to Pluto. (laughs) Um, If we launch after that, later in 06 in particular, uh, we have a launch window in February, or in 07, for example if uh, something were to keep us on the ground, then that would be a direct shot because Jupiter's not in position any longer. Hmm. But I have to say, we're building a very small spacecraft and buying a very big launch vehicle, and so we're traveling quite a bit faster than Voyager.
0: Huh. Yeah, your spacecraft is, uh, what, only about 900 pounds?
2: Well, closer to 1,000 with fuel. But, uh, you know, when you put that on the biggest missile you can find, uh, the big, you know, one of the biggest types of missiles you can find, The end result is a very high launch speed. Consider this. uh, The Apollo spacecraft took three, three and a half days to reach the orbit of the moon. We're going to do it in a matter of hours. Uh, Galileo and Cassini took six years to get to Jupiter. Uh, We're going to do it in uh, 13, 14 months, depending upon uh, the the details. Wow. That's amazing. So we're really, uh, you know, humming.
0: I suppose that, in your opinion, the sooner the better.
2: Oh, absolutely. There's enough delayed gratification in this mission.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Tell us, with apologies to you and to our regular listeners who uh, know the answer to this question, why should we be so curious? Why should we be spending uh, still not a huge amount of money in planetary exploration terms, but but a few dollars to reach this rock, which uh, some people now question whether it's even a planet?
2: Well, I think there, there are sort of two ways, you know, to answer that question. I'll give you both. Um, one way is, you know, scientifically, the um, National Academy ranked this mission at the very top of the to-do list for this decade in terms of planetary exploration because we're going to a whole new realm of the solar system, visiting new types of objects and getting a brand-new kind of window into the origin and birth of our solar system. And that, that racks up to a pretty important suite of objectives. But, you know, there's also just the, uh, the human perspective. Uh, this is a mission of first-time exploration. It's been a long time since NASA's done anything like that. Uh, we've had very successful returns to Mars, to Jupiter, very shortly to Saturn. We could go down that list. Um, but uh, putting a little bit of the excitement of the old days of uh, first-time exploration back, I think, has really got people jazzed, uh, ranging from Planetary Society members to the general public, uh, to school kids. And it's got me excited.
0: I I very unfairly called it that little rock out there when really, even though we don't have a huge amount of data uh, on Pluto because it is so far away, there are already some very intriguing mysteries.
2: Well, there are. And, uh, you know, it is a little spit of a planet on the distant edge of the solar system. There's there's no kidding ourselves about that. In fact, that's part of what makes it so interesting. I remember... uh, even before I was interested in astronomy, you know, I can remember in grade school being uh, taught that there are four rocky planets, sort of like the Earth in one way, small planets on the inside of the solar system, and four gas giants, and then this oddball spit of a planet covered in ice on a strange elliptical orbit called Pluto. And I can remember being a little kid and wondering, who ordered that? You know, how did how did that get to be that way? Why, why is it so different? In fact, it turns out that Pluto is just the tip of an iceberg, the largest of one of, well, over 100,000 Kuiper Belt objects. And so when I was a kid growing up in the 60s, we we couldn't detect the Kuiper Belt objects, and Pluto looked like it was without context. But now we see pretty clearly that it fits in pretty naturally. There's kind of an asteroid belt beyond the giant planets of icy objects, uh, unlike the rocky asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter, and Pluto is the king of the Kuiper Belt.
0: So, in a way, is New Horizons as much a mission to the Kuiper Belt as it is to Pluto?
2: Oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, NASA calls the mission the Pluto Kuiper Belt mission, PKB.
0: Once we have waited those years, depending on when you launch, as you said, and we get out there, what kinds of instruments, what will New Horizons be able to tell us about this little planet and its neighbors?
2: Well, we're going to make a very thorough study of the Pluto-Sharon system and then go on to Kuiper Belt Objects. We're carrying uh, no less than eight cameras uh, with various resolutions and color capabilities. Uh, We have spectrometers to determine surface, to actually map surface composition at every pixel on Pluto, on Charon, on KBOs. We have instruments to uh, study the atmospheres of these objects, their ionospheres, if they have them, by uh, remote sensing, meaning by the light that's coming from the atmosphere. And also, we have instruments that will actually sample the material that's escaping off the atmosphere to tell us more about that escape rate and also about uh, the composition of the material. And in addition to that, we're carrying gear that will allow us to measure the surface temperatures, not only the basic surface temperatures, but to map the surface temperatures across each world that we visit.
0: Very exciting. Uh, It's going to be uh, difficult to wait, I think, uh, for a lot of us who... We'll be anxious to see those pictures. Our guest is Dr. Alan Stern of the Southwest Research Institute, a central figure, as we said, in the New Horizons mission to Pluto. We're going to pause now for a quick break, and then we will be right back with Alan Stern here on Planetary Radio. Alan Stern is our special guest this week on Planetary Radio. He is the director of the Department of Space Studies at the Southwest Research Institute in Boulder, Colorado, and that's where we find him, other end of our telephone line today. Uh, Alan, we're going to bring it uh, considerably closer uh, in in the solar system to some other mysterious objects which have been really only theorized, I'm not sure that anybody has actually found uh, actual proof that they exist, but maybe you'll correct me. They have that wonderfully intriguing name, uh, vulcanoids, and this is another major area of interest for you.
2: Well, it is. It's something that I and my uh, colleague Dan Dirt have been working on for a few years. It's to find out whether or not there's an asteroid belt inside of Mercury's orbit. This has been theorized for over a century and yet uh, it's so difficult an observation to make due to the proximity of the sun that no one knows the answer.
0: And that's really it. It's just so hard to pick out these what must be fairly small objects with that bright light right next to them.
2: That's the whole problem. Uh, These little guys are lost in the glare of the sun.
0: Now, we we talked to Dan Durda a little bit about this, and we talked to him about, in fact, I accused him of, Uh, half just wanting to have that fun experience going up in the F-18s. You uh, also get to take those rides.
2: That's right. Well, I was flying uh, other high-performance NASA aircraft before uh, the Vulcanoids work. as was Dan. We enjoy it a lot, but uh, also it's a very, very apt tool for certain types of uh, airborne astronomy. Much lower cost than base observations, and in fact, lower cost than, I believe, any other kind of airborne astronomy and uh, allows us to do some things you can't do in big aircraft.
0: I still find it amazing that you can fit any kind of useful scientific uh, uh, instrumentation in that already very tight cockpit.
2: Well, we fly a very high-tech, image-intensified camera that frames at 60 hertz, 60 frames a second, so that we can, with a computer on the ground afterwards, take the jitter, the very slight jitter uh, from the aircraft motion out. Uh, We're able to get down to... um, 13th magnitude or better on a dark sky and see Hmm. very faint objects, uh, that corresponds to things that are pushing, not quite, but pushing thousands of times fainter than your eye can see.
0: Any tantalizing evidence?
2: Not from our work, um, not yet. We've been able to constrain the possibility of the volcanoids down pretty far. If they're there, there can't be more than a few hundred and they can't be much bigger than uh, 10 kilometers across. However, uh, if you look at the face of Mercury, you see a lot of craters. And uh, uh, those those are caused by impactors, many of which may have been vulcanoids long ago. I I think I'll find it surprising if uh, all the evidence, if every last one is gone. But that's what we're out to find out.
0: Mm. We mentioned Dan Durda, of course, a colleague of yours, another colleague, uh, William K. Hartman. Dr. Hartman, Bill Hartman, has also been on the show. There seems to be a oh, I don't know, a fraternity, a, I'd call it a brotherhood, but some of them are women, of folks like you who are extremely curious about what is happening within our solar system, and in some cases beyond, and learning about it, but, but really taking first-hand action to to do this kind of research. And you certainly qualify those uh, times up in F-18s. I know you spend time underwater as well and in uh, some of the more forlorn places uh, on our planet. Do you get the feeling that you're in kind of a, uh, a special club with uh, people doing this kind of research?
2: Well, it's select in the sense that not many people get to live their dream. I don't know that it's uh, any more than that, really. i I tell you, I think... Uh, I can only speak for myself, but I'm having a ball, and uh, I think we're we're learning new things, uh, and therefore uh, I think you know, that's what astronomers contribute is uh, a better perspective for all of us about uh, our place in space and where we came from.
0: You've been able to collect some of these colleagues periodically. Uh, the latest example of this is in a book that uh, the paperback edition has just come out from Cambridge University Press. It's called Worlds Beyond. I've had a ball reading it over the last few days. Just got it. Uh, a few days ago, and uh, it is a wonderful collection of essays, not just about these worlds in our solar system that we uh, share a star with, but about why a lot of these people have gone in this direction. And uh, and you have one of, the, one of these essays. I guess that's the editor's prerogative, right, to have the last uh, entry?
2: Well, my, my boss at Cambridge University Press uh, asked at the end of the third book that I finally write one of these myself, so I did. <laughs> This is, as I said, the third in a series of three, uh, the last in the series of three books, all done by Cambridge University Press. I was the editor for all three. And the concept was to have astronomers, planetary astronomers or astrophysicists, write in first person about objects or types of objects that they'd invested large parts of their career in, basically challenging them in their essays to not just transmit the frontier astronomy, but also to tell why they're interested in a given body, like the moon or Pluto, or in the case of uh, our universe, which was about astrophysics, uh, those topics.
0: You have uh, not only these wonderful essays, and, and I enjoy reading the motivations of these people as much as I do the, the incredible findings that they've made, but you also have these beautiful color plates, some of which are examples of uh, artwork from uh, your colleague Bill Hartman.
2: That's right. Bill is an author in this book. Uh, in the third book, we wanted to really go beyond what we'd done in the first two and, and pick some types of, of authors that weren't just strictly uh, astronomers, uh, research astronomers only, but had other interesting aspects to their careers. For example, uh, Jack Schmidt, who was aboard Apollo 17 and walked on the moon, uh, right about the return to the moon.
0: You can call him Jack. I have to call him Senator, I think. <laughs>
2: Well, he is a former senator as well, and Bill Hartman, who you mentioned, uh, who does, in addition to his research career as an artist, uh, writes about uh, planetary science with a paintbrush in hand. Uh, we asked Kelly Beattie, who's a very well-known uh, planetary science reporter for Sky and Telescope, to write about covering planetary science. And then in addition, there are the normal sorts of articles, from the other, like the other books, where folks write about... They're interested in a given body, like in this book. We, we cover Mercury, we cover Pluto, we cover the asteroids. Uh, there's an article about roving on Mars by Matt Kolumbeck of JPL there in L.A, uh, who was in charge scientifically of the Pathfinder Rover and Rover mission back in 1997.
0: Another uh, former guest on this program. You, <laughs> you have one uh, by uh, a, a very young-looking uh, woman. Robin, is it Canop?
2: Robin Canop. That's right and she's a very accomplished scientist. Uh, Robin is uh, just the new, newly awarded uh, Yuri Prize winner of the Division of Planetary Sciences. She's an outstanding theorist who's uh, really made great advances in understanding the origin of the Earth's moon, and that's what she writes about.
0: And the book is available from Amazon?
2: It is, and it's available uh, anywhere Cambridge University Press distributes. They have uh, book clubs and, of course, uh uh, they have their own website, and they're in many, many bookstores.
0: It is called Worlds Beyond. The The uh, subtitle is The Thrill of Planetary Exploration. It really communicates that thrill, and I think you do too, Alan, and uh, it has been a great pleasure talking with you. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Matt. And we will post the URL for the website at SWRI and the uh, Department of uh, Space Studies, if you don't mind.
2: Yeah, go right ahead.
0: That's great. Thank you very much, and I'm sure uh, we will want to check into you as we get closer to the launch of New Horizons, and hopefully we'll still be uh, doing this thing uh, when you reach Pluto.
2: I hope so. It's a lot of fun, and uh, I'll look forward to doing it again.
0: Alan Stern has been our guest. He is the director of the Department of Space Studies at the Southwest Research Institute in Boulder, Colorado. We'll be back in just a moment.
1: I'm Emily Lakdawalla, back with Q&A. It's difficult to get a perspective on how the giant planet atmospheres change over time without constant observation by orbiting spacecraft. Luckily, the Hubble Space Telescope is sharp enough to observe changes on these planets. Hubble has confirmed that a storm observed by the Voyager spacecraft in the northern latitudes of Saturn's atmosphere has persisted for at least 15 years, and it has also been used to discover a new huge white storm blooming near Saturn's equator. Hubble was also used to observe Neptune where it found that the great dark spot discovered by Voyager had disappeared by 1994, while new dark spots had appeared elsewhere in Neptune's atmosphere. Over time, Hubble has discovered that Neptune's southern hemisphere appears to be brightening, leading to the conclusion that Neptune, like Earth, may experience seasonal change. Our understanding of the long-term behavior of storms in giant planet atmospheres will continue to increase with the help of Hubble and planetary spacecraft, particularly Cassini, when it arrives at Saturn in July of 2004. Got a question about the universe? Send it to us at planetaryradio at planetary.org. And now, here's Matt with more Planetary Radio.
0: Time again for What's Up with... Dr. Bruce Betts. And, uh, Bruce, you're on the road again doing uh, research?
3: Uh, I am indeed. I'm in uh, California's Bay Area uh, doing microgravity research.
0: Okay. now, Now tell the truth. You've been bouncing, haven't you?
3: All right. I was playing in a bounce house, but still... That's kind of the same.
0: <laughs> Playing and trying to keep your, your child from being bounced on. I was going to say,
3: right? my points my were there. <laughs> it isn't as bad as it sounds.
0: <laughs> well, it was microgravity research. I th- I think it's legit. Uh, what do you have for us this week?
3: Uh, well, what's up? Mars. Mars. And Mars. <laughs> Look for Mars. Good stuff. Ignore the rest of them. They're too hard to see. <laughs> Go looking for Mars. It rises about three hours after sunset in, uh, in the east-southeast, and will be up the rest of the night. And extremely bright, brighter than anything else out there. Red-orange getting brighter as each week goes along through uh, the end of August. And on the evening of the 16th, all the way through the following morning, you can watch the moon uh, close in on Mars. And, in fact, for our listeners in southern Florida you can actually see uh, the the moon will actually occult Mars and go in front of Mars. Hmm. Uh, Also true from from a few other locales. If you have any trouble finding the moon or Mars, look at them together the night of the 16th.
0: Excellent. Okay. Let's move on.
3: This week in space history, quite historic. June, July 20th, 1969, Apollo 11 astronaut Neil Armstrong steps onto the surface of the moon, becoming the first human to ever walk on another world. July 20th, 1976, the U.S. Viking 1 lander landed on Mars, becoming the first successful Mars lander.
0: I think two of the great, greatest days in all of human history.
3: True, true, true. Speaking of great, random space fact. Jupiter's moon, Ganymede, the largest moon in the solar system, has a surface area that is approximately half that of the Earth's land surface area. So in, not including the Earth's ocean, about the, half the surface area. Jupiter's moon, Ganymede. Shall we move to the trivia contest?
0: Let's do that. That's what uh, so many people are waiting for, to find out uh, the answer to last week's trivia question.
3: Last week's trivia question, what is the name of the tiny moonlet orbiting the asteroid Ida? The answer being Dactyl. And how'd we do with the winner out there? We did very well.
0: Everyone got it right. And uh, not a few people even provided uh, the mythological basis for the fact that that moon is named Dactyl. Uh, here is one that somebody sent us. It, uh, derived from the Dactyli, a group of mythological beings who lived on Mount Ida. The Dactyli uh, or D- Dactyli uh, protected the infant Zeus after the nymph Ida hid and raised the god on the mountain.
3: Isn't that something? That is incredible. I, I I did not know that. Thank goodness for our listeners. Yes. Um, I actually had some Dactyl, uh, but I was able to get them removed.
0: <laughs> That's good. <laughs> it's a wonder what they can do with modern medicine. It really is. And uh, speaking of our listeners, uh, there is Alex Chapman out there. Alex, uh, who enters just about every week. He hails from uh, Manchester in the United Kingdom, and uh, he always has something to entertain us when he enters. This time he said, Alex Chapman pronounced, his wife has no idea why he is obsessed with winning a 3D poster and getting a mention. Well, guess what, Alex? You're halfway there. <laughs> I'm sorry, Alex. You didn't win, but you did get a mention. <laughs>
3: displaying Matt's occasional cruel streak, but hey, keep trying. Keep trying.
0: Yeah, well, you know, we were talking about this, Bruce and I, and I said it's a win-win, because, you know, I get a little cruel fun out of it, and Alex gets his
3: name mentioned. So, exactly, listen, keep in. En- we, sticking to random selection,
0: <laughs>
3: have determined whom to be the winner.
0: Here it is, Mark Vroman's who uh, lives in Merrickville, uh, New South Wales, Australia. We actually had a couple of Aussies enter with the correct answer this week, but Mark was the one whose lucky number was chosen. So, Mark, you'll be getting that wonderful Mars 3D poster and uh, our appreciation.
3: Excellent. How about a new trivia question? Yeah, how about one? Where in the solar system can you find the Valhalla Basin?
0: Hmm.
3: Valhalla Basin.
0: The Valhalla Basin that is the mythical, or, you know, who knows, maybe not mythical, what, uh, paradise of the Vikings, isn't it? Indeed. Although I suspect they didn't have in mind wherever this actual one is.
3: A little nippier than what they had in mind. (laughs) Ooh, a hint, a hint. Here's your hint.
0: (laughs) Well, there you have it, folks. How do they enter, Bruce?
3: Go to planetary.org, follow the links for Planetary Radio, and it will tell you how to enter. Do you want to mention one other thing before we're done? which is after, uh, after quite a number of tries and many days, weeks of waiting, the Mars Exploration Rover B mission did launch on July 7th with Sandy Moondust Astrobot on board. To read more about the launch and the adventures of Sandy Moondust and Biff Starling, Astrobots in Space, keep listening to Planetary Radio, and you can also go to redroverghostmars.org slash astrobots.
0: And anybody who might be wondering why we don't have Sandy on this week, well, she's kind of busy up there. You know, got to get everything locked down and reconfigured for the uh, long, although not as long as usual, trip to Mars. But uh, I'm sure we'll have her on soon, right, Bruce?
3: Uh, very soon. She's also still very busy answering uh, Biff's questions.
0: Mm, yeah, I think he probably has a lot.
3: Yeah, although most of them are about video games, which frustrates her. We'll, we'll get back to that later.
0: I bet we'll hear from Biff, too. Oh, yeah. That's it. Uh, I guess we'll have you back, uh, back at home next week.
3: We will, doing it live in the studio, sort of. (laughs) Uh, Look up in the night sky and think about what your form of paradise would be like. Thank you, and good night.
0: That's a a nice one, a thoughtful, nice one from Dr. Bruce Betts, the director of projects for the Planetary Society, joins us each week for What's Up. But you knew that, didn't you? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I might keep that. That's it for this week. Thanks to all of you for listening, and especially to everyone who has written to us. We try to answer every message. You can tell us what you think of our little show by sending email to planetaryradio at planetary.org. That's planetaryradio, all one word, at planetary.org. And remember that you can find all of our past shows and a lot of other great information on the Planetary Society website, planetary.org. Have a great week.